Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Eli Feder. Rabbi Feder received Yore Yore and Yadin Yadin Semichot from his Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael Chait. He also received a PhD in mathematics from CUNY Graduate Center. He has been a Magachir at Yeshiva B'nai Torah and mathematics professor at Kingsborough Community College since 2004. He has published many papers and delivered many talks in graph theory, his field of mathematics research. He lives in Farakaway, New York with his wife Eliza and their four children. His new book, Gamachia Refigured, presents the discoveries that led to the author's transformation from a Gamachia skeptic to a Gamachia lover. It develops a theory which elucidates how the Torah and Chazal use Gamachia to direct us toward a very specific type of idea. Through its many examples, this work illustrates how Gamachia can help us uncover novel insights while providing interesting and clearly formulated perspectives into many mitzvot, themes, and stories in Tanakh. Bensi and I were skeptics, and after this amazing shiur, he changed our minds. So without further ado, Rabbi Feder. Thank you for joining us, Rabbi Feder. Sure. Uh, the first question we have is, Gematria is one of the methods of agadic interpretation, but unfortunately has developed as a bad reputation as something that can easily be manipulated to prove any idea. In your introduction, you pointed out a famous Ibn Ezra, where he shows the danger of reading the Torah as conveying numbers. Can you tell our audience examples of how gematrias can be misleading and give some thoughts on give some thoughts about their proper place in Torah? Sure. Great question. Great question. So it's actually, it's a good time of year because this is uh, the, the Parshios and Voracious have a lot of Gamachos which come up. And the Parshios that we were just reading today is there's if that famous Ibn Ezra you're talking about. There are actually two Ibn Ezra's, but it's talking about the famous, one of the famous Gamachos everyone knows is in the, in the Parsha when Avraham went to war with 318 men. So the Pasuk Rashi says 318 men is actually not 318 men. It's a reference to Eliezer. Because Eliezer was his servant, and the Gematria, if you add up the letters, Aleph for one, and Lamed for 30, and so on, as you all know, how Gematria works, you break it up, it turns out the Gematria of Eliezer is 318. So Rashi says, the 318 men that Avram went to wage war against the kings was really just Eliezer, the one man. And the, the Ibn Ezra, on that one, he says, the, the count of, when it says that's Eliezer, it means he's the 318, that's just the drasha. It's a um, it's a manner of Josh. It's not meant to be interpreted literally. because the Torah doesn't talk in Gematria. Now this is his phrase. It's interesting. Anyone who wants could take any name in the world and make it for good or for bad. A name is like it's mashma, like it sounds. You can't just take a name and change things. The Torah says words. It says 318. You can't just say, oh, that just means Eliezer. That's not Eliezer. So, so he's he's expressing the idea that people, and this is what I think happens a lot, people will take any word and you change it into a numerical value, kind of change it back into a different word, and then say, oh, that's what it really means. And that's what the Ibn Ezra is talking against. That's one Ibn Ezra. He also talks about, and, and what, what do you mean? How could it be? How could you take anything to mean anything? What, do you, what does he mean by that? So there's another example which he talks about, and the Ramam also talks about this, and I think it's in Geras Hashemad or Geras Teman, is basically, it's um, also in this week's part, it says, Yishmael, it says, by Tomei Yishmael, it says, Hine Berachti Yosof Me'od Me'od. 
very, very much. Hashem tells Avram that he's going to bless Yishmael very, very much. And the Gematria of the Ma'od Ma'od is Muhammad. Muhammad, I think. So the, 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 there's actually the, the Muslims who basically says, oh, you see the Torah predicts the coming of the, not the coming, but the existence of Muhammad. So that's what the Ibn Ezra says. Uh, he, so he talks about this. He says, people who say that the mode mode in this Pasuk, this is the Ibn Ezra in Shmos 1.7. He says, people who say that it's talking about, um, you know, Muhammad, because that's it. Well, he says, what are they going to do when the Torah says, and the Bnei Yisrael was very plentiful and also B'mod Mode. They grew very much. That's not talking about Muhammad. So if you say the word B'mod Mode is a reference to Muhammad because that's by Yishmael, it doesn't work out over there. And then he says this strong statement. He says, God forbid, heaven forbid, that the, the Navish or the Torah should talk in Gamachios and Ramizos. So he says that's not a way to interpret the Torah. The Torah writes a word. It says mod mod. It means a lot. It doesn't mean Muhammad. And another example like that is um, the famous um, false Mashiach, Shabtai Tzvi, actually figured out that his the Gamachia of Mashiach Ha'amiti, 814, is the same as Shabtai Tzvi. Uh, so you can support a lot of different things with Gamachia. And that's kind of the point. Is that I think that's what the Ibn Ezra means, that a person who wants, he could twist, he can make up anything. There's a lot, a person's creative enough, and nowadays there's websites, and there's, you could, if you want to twist things, and make, you could come up with whatever message you want, and then just put it into a Gamachia. So that's kind of, um, you know, what's out there. I believe the same would also go with for Bible codes, correct? Yes, that's another question. I'm a mathematician, actually, and I haven't really researched the Bible codes, but my sense is, I know there's a lot of debate amongst mathematicians whether statistically it's legit. Could you really, is it, is it statistically significant, as they say? And I don't know. I've never really been convinced, but I haven't really looked into it in depth. But they, they, it's kind of, I think it's been debunked and the cure of movements, thankfully, have uh, kind of yeah. been from it because, you know, you can, they've proved you can do it with like Moby Dick and like Shakespeare. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So again, I'm not, I'm not holding in the mathematics of it, but that's, you know, that's my, my sense. But it's a bit, you know, there's debates amongst, you know, it's hard to get to the bottom of these things. Yeah. Recently, like a few years ago, I was, I was seeing people sending around like Donald Trump, like right. is, is <laughs> yeah, but it's like, it's so silly. It's like, it, they could spell it in so many different ways. Like don't yeah. I'll try, add an olive in there. Yeah, right. like, they'll right. do like, you know, they'll do yeah, that. Right. And so it, it's it interesting. Mashiach anyway, but anyway. Yeah. So there's a Ramban. There's a famous Ramban. Based, I don't know how famous it is, but it's a Ramban in Sefer Ga'ula. And he says, I'm going to read it to you in English, but he says a really interesting thing because Ramban is referencing some Gamachias. And he says like this, perhaps a person will oppose me. This is Sefer, Sefer Gula Shar Aleph. Perhaps a person will oppose me for relying on the calculations of the letters, which we refer to as gematria. Such calculations will seem to him to be vanity and emptiness, since a person can derive bad and strange ideas from many verses using this method. Right? That's the Ramban saying. We will respond to the one who asks about this matter in accordance with the truth, namely, that no man is permitted to apply his own gematria calculation and to derive any notion that occurs to his mind. Rather, there's a received tradition which has been passed down by our rabbis, the holy sages of the Talmud of blessed memory, that certain known gematrias were transmitted to Moshe at Sinai in order to serve as a mnemonic device and an illusion. Like I think he says, a remez, but os, for matters which were given orally, along with the rest of the oral Torah, some in the realm of Agada and others in the realm of permitted and prohibited. Yeah. 
So basically, the Ramban is saying that don't blame me for for gematrios. He's saying gematrios are there's misura and certain gematrios from Chazal from Sinai, and a person's not allowed to just make up his own gematrios. The Ramban is saying, but the gematrios which he cites and which are in Chazal are from misura. They're remes. They're os. They're bringing to mind certain ideas, and that's what he's you know, talking, I think, against, I think that there's a difference when, on the one hand, gamacha is a topic which is maybe misused at times, and anybody on his own makes up, obviously, Shabtai Tzvi and Muhammad is, uh, are misuses of it, but at the same time, they are in Chazal, and there's a Mesorah, they're part of our Mesorah, as you mentioned earlier, it's a Derech Drash, it's one of the methods of, of Drash, the Mishnah in Perkei says, Tkufos Gamachios, Parparosa Chachma, the equinoxes and gamachios are desserts of wisdom. When out, you can't go through the Rashi's, and especially in Bereshis. There's so many times Rashi's referencing gamachios. You go to Gemara's talking about it. It's part of our Mesorah, but that doesn't mean anything goes. And that's kind of, you know, there's two sides of, of, of gamachios. You're thinking a, a middle ground approach in a way. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I think it's like there's people who are gamachio skeptics and they throw it out and they reject it. And, but at the same time, you can't just throw it out. It's part of Torah. So at the same time, it's hard to embrace it because it kind of sounds like, how do you differentiate? And that's kind of what I try to do. Pointing, it's pointing to certain truths, like just like Midrash is pointing yeah. to certain truths and we don't have to accept all of them, right? We can, we don't, but doesn't mean you have to throw the baby out, out with the bathwater. It's like, well, yeah, where but we... I'm not, I'm not trying to not accept it. I want to try to understand. Yes. You know? right. In so general, I... that's my attitude towards Chazal is I'm assuming Chazal are great minds and my goal and my, my goal in general in learning is try to uncover what they're teaching me. Right. So so I think that part of what has transpired over the years, and I understand what you're saying, uh, Gamatria properly understood and recognized as part of a tradition in Chazal is worth uncovering and trying to understand and trying to analyze. However, what has transpired over the years, um, even if, even uh, taking away made up gematrias, which is a separate point. But even within existing gematrias, to a certain extent, it has taken almost a mystical connotation. Yes. You know what I mean? Right. That uh, like the people are people are looking at gematrias and they're looking at it more than what it's supposed to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's become yes. it's taken a life on its of its own. Yes. Yes. You know what I mean? And yes. that's a problem. Yes. You know what right. I mean? We um, need some Judaism demystified. <laughs> no, so, but but I I 100 understand, and I'm I'm and I want and I want I'm yes. looking forward throughout this podcast to get a healthy understanding of yes. Gematria, yeah. which which should should hopefully dispel the more larger than life yes. type of Gematrias that is you know yes. you know, okay. exactly that's why I wrote it that's why I, that's why I just came out of the book this is the point of the book called Gematria refigure so we're going to refigure it and try to come up with a new way of looking at it, which is, I think, in line with the Misora and with the Hazalic. And, and that's why we wanted to have you Amazing. on, because what we do on this podcast, we're not trying to like just dispel all notions and, and throw out ideas of Judaism. We, we want to just have people have a healthier understanding of yes. of the actual Misora and not just imp superimpose our own or project our own beliefs on to, to mitzvot, but yes. rather we should understand what they really mean. Yes. So, uh, okay, so uh, you want to go with the second? Sure. So, as a respected mathematician and a critical thinking rabbi, what led you to write a book about such a malign topic? Okay, great. Good question. So, so my background, I'm a Rebbe, 
and I'm a mathematician. I'm a Rebbe at Yeshiva B'nai Torah, Rabbi Chet Yeshiva in Farakoi. I'm a mathematician, study graph theory. I'm a professor in Kingsborough Community College, which is part of CUNY. And in my training, when I was a young man, my 20s, I was studying, jointly studying, I was in a PhD program for mathematics. I was studying for smicha in Yeshiva B'nai Torah. And when I told people what I was doing, the question I'd always get, I'd always get this excited question, you must love gematria. <laughs> Either that or Torah code. It was gematria or Torah code. And I was like, nah, whatever. Yeah, not not exactly. You know, like, I don't know, it was like an uncomfortable question because it just feels like such like a shidduch, you know? Gematria, PhD, math, Torah. And I just never quite, it didn't sit well with me. And, and the basic idea was like, my experience in learning Torah is an experience of seeing the, the beauty of the ideas of the Torah, the insights, the pearls of wisdom. Torah was came alive. My Rabbeim taught me, Rabbi Chait, Rabbi Man, they taught me the beauty of Torah. They showed me how Torah is relevant to our lives, how we could learn lessons about the Chumash, about Halacha, about how to live, about everything, about ethics from Torah. And the experience of Talmud Torah was this it was this um, very intellectual, enjoyable experience of seeing the pearls of wisdom that Chazal were trying to convey to us. And to me, and that, that's on one side. And math, on the same time, was also was a very rigorous discipline, which involved, again, I studied, my PhD was in group theory, in something called braid groups. And then I study now, I do research in something called graph theory. And these are rigorous, they're abstract. And they're they're much more than just basic arithmetic. So from my my from my take, when I see saw gematrias again, this was again in my younger years when I, I used to be a gematria skeptic, if you will, as probably many of your listeners are. And the book is basically telling my story of my transformation from being a gematria skeptic to being a gematria lover, but a prop a certain way of looking at gematria. But basically, at the time. Gematria didn't talk to me. The way Gematria is often presented was not beautiful Torah ideas, insightful Torah ideas and wisdom. They were not pearls of wisdom that I was used to, nor was it beautiful mathematics. It's not, it's just plus, right? I mean, it's nothing rigorous in terms of mathematics. So people think you must love Gematria. It just didn't talk to me, to either part of me. And I was studying, again, I was pursuing my paths of Torah and of mathematics, and it just kind of, it didn't talk to me. And that was kind of where I was at for many years. And then you're asking, so what, what got me to write this book? Well, so then I'll tell you, so then let me tell you a little bit. So then this was my attitude. I just always kind of had this negative attitude toward Gematria because of this. It just didn't, it just didn't talk to me. But again, I knew in the back of my mind, you can't have a negative attitude to something in Torah. It's like Torah is, is Meisham, it's from Smesora, there's Chazal. It's just not, it's not a, an option in my mind to just say, oh, I don't hold by Gematria. I think it's whatever. It's just, it's part of Torah. So it must be there's something deeper. Well, what is it? So when I was, again, once I was fortunate to to come to, to do a Rashi, which um, which is actually, it's in Parshas Chayasara. And the, I'll tell you about it. But basically, I, I was fortunate to have some insight into it, into understanding the the lesson that the Gematria was teaching. And it was an opening to a window to how to, how to learn Gematrios. And the window was opened a little bit, and it took many years later till I truly got more insight into it. But I'll tell you a little bit about that, Gamatria. So the Pasuk is um, in the beginning of Chayasara, 
It says, Avram Zaken Babayamim. Avram was old, old age. Hashem Avram Bakal. And Hashem blessed Avram with everything. Everything. Bakal. With everything. In everything. With everything. What does it mean, Hashem blessed Avram with everything? So the Ibn Ezra says, it means his length of days, honor, wealth, children. This is everything that a person desires, right? Avram had everything, right? Mm-hmm. And the Ramban also learns that way, right? That's what it sounds like, right? If you think about it, he was wealthy, all the, all the stuff, beautiful wife and children, right? But Rashi says, Bakol in Gematria, Bez Chaf Lamid, 52, is the same Gematria as Bain, a son. And since he had a son, Yitzchak, now, this is the introduction to Chayesara, where which is about Avram sending Eliezer to find the wife for Yitzchak. And this is the introduction. Hashem blessed Avram with everything, means with a son. And that's the introduction to the Parsha, where Avram is going to find the wife for the son. Okay? So, again, he's taking the word, Bakal, which means everything. The Pshat of the Pasuk is definitely saying Hashem blessed Avram with everything. And, uh, and Rashi is doing, and this bothered me at the time. What, what's he doing? He's taking a word, which again, Aramban, Ibn Ezra, Zabshan, the Pasuk is saying everything. Why limit it to one thing? To say, Bakal means a son. That's not what that means. It means everything's everything. And the Birkas Hashem was, it's like denying the Birkas Hashem, which Hashem gave Avram tons of things. And just say one thing, it just, it, to me, it was striking. And and they thought about it. And, and I after pondering the Rashi, I, I, came, I thought of, a, of, an, of an idea. And the thought was as follows. If I were to, t- to tell you, we could try this on you guys. If I'd say, I'm going to give you, you can think of a genie who comes and tells you, I'm going to give you everything. Okay? Make a list. Make a list of everything. Everything you want. Okay? Start writing. Imagine this thought experiment, right? Start writing on your list and you fill it out. And maybe you spend five minutes, 10 minutes, I don't know how long you're at. And then you say, okay, you good? Is that everything? This is it. One time, everything? You say, well, I don't know. Not, not quite everything. I think I get a few more things, right? And if you think about it, I don't think a person is going to feel comfortable ever by saying, that's everything. The person never feels, who says, I have everything? A person as a... Um, as the Pasuk says, Ohev kasef lo kasef. a person who loves money never is satisfied with money. Person, I'll say, a person has $100, he wants a thousand, 200 it's 200 he wants 400 So it's like a person never says, I have everything. Everything is this unattainable word. How could we ever say, I have everything? It's infinite, right? Bakal is infinite. But yet, but yet the Torah is telling us, Hashem Bakal, he gave him everything. So it seems somehow, this word, which sounds like this infinite thing, which is impossible. Esav said, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. But Yaakov said, Yaakov said, Yeshli Kal, I have everything. So it seems like Avram is able to have Bakal. And there is a Ramban, actually, which says that when, when Avram died, it says, this is in Bracious Chavchechas, it says, Avram Tova, He died old and satisfied. So he died satisfied. And Rashi Ramban says, he says that he had all of his heart's desires satisfied. He was full, full with all the good. And he says that's the way it is with the tzaddik. And he says David Malach is also like that as a Pasuk. And the Ramban says it's a seaport. It's telling us the chaste Hashem that the chesed Hashem that he gives them that. Umida tove bahem. 
And the great Mida, which Tzadikim have, they don't have a taiva, a desire for luxuries, for extravagances. And he says, as opposed to other people, and he quotes that Pasuk, and the Chazal, person who's had, who loves money is never satisfied. He says, Chazal say a person never dies with half of his taiva satisfied. He has 100, he wants 200. He has 200, he wants 400. So he says, but the Mida Tova of Tzadikim is Shaloyis Avu Bemosros. They don't want extravagances. And I think the insight is, is that a per, or, or an average person, us, we don't differentiate carefully between our needs and our wants. And our needs are limited. We could think about what we really need in our life to give us the good life which they're trying to attain. Our wants are endless. That list keeps on going and going and going. And if we think we're done with it, once we get all those things, it keeps going more. And it's an endless list. And people don't, don't, they're these avu bimosos. They always want luxuries. They always want more. And they look at the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. They don't truly assess what is important in life. What do they really want? But it's tzaddik, like Avram, like Yaakov, like David Amalek, are people who are able to assess their lives, to think what's truly important in life. And for a person like Avram Vino, what was important to him was to pass on his legacy, the ideas which he discovered to the next generation, the next generation, to build the nation which we are fortunate to be a part of. And he knew in order to do that, he wasn't going to work with Ben Meshach Beitu, the Meshach Eliezer, with his servant, who was a servant. He was an Eved, and Chazal say Eved is like cursed in people's eyes. It's not going to work. He knew he had to have his own son. And that was the one thing he wanted. That's what he needed. To be satisfied in life, he needed a son. So yes, Hashem gave him lots of things. But don't think that's what Hashem, that Avram needed those things to be happy. For Avram to be happy, they helped in his mission. But ultimately, the th one thing Avram needed was a son. That was essential. That was a need. He had a lot of money, but he didn't need a lot of money. He needed a son in order to, to pass on the mission, to carry on the nation, which the, the ideas that he wanted to pass down, he knew he needed a son. So the, the so I don't think Rashi is denying the plain shot of the Pasuk. Hashem He did bless him with many, many, many things, as the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban are saying. But the, Ramban, but the Rashi and the Chazal want you to say that don't think Avraham was like this Taiva guy who loved looking for all his wealth and all these things, and that was what made him tick. On the contrary, in Avraham's mind, Bakal, what was Bakal? What was everything? It was merely a son. That's it. Beautiful. Now, now to elaborate, now you might ask, okay, great. But now you thought this was a further step. And this is what I thought was really the nice idea, is that why use gematria to teach us this? Okay, you could say this idea, but why specifically... I was literally just thinking about this right now as you were going on. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> why specifically use gematria? Is it just another way to reference an idea? And that's what I think I used to th think. I used to think gematrias are like a lot of chazals, and they just use these allegories or these things to teach ideas, and that's great. If we'd stop here, it is great. You see a nice idea, how to live your life, it teaches us, gives us food for thought, Let's us think into our lives and assess our wants and our needs. And we can learn a lesson from this Rashi right here. But do you, what's, is there some significance of the fact that specifically is using gematria? I think that the point that you were making, the, the, the point you were making with this gematria would be very hard to express. Okay. It's almost not, you can't get it unless you can bring both the word everything and hide the, yeah, the the the, the, the focal point, the focal yes. point of the sun, so that then you gotta kind of make that connection because 
I'm not sure that you can actually say that out. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. So so that's you could say that. I agree with that, but I think even deeper. So the word bakal, and this is what's interesting about Camacho. It's strange about Camacho. We're all familiar with it, so we don't think about it. But it's taking a and this is I think what used to bother me about Camacho also. It's like this is what the Menazra meant, I think. He says, is that the words Hashem Kimashmao, words have meanings. Right? We study words. We're Dorish words. We learn them. We think about them. Words are vehicles of expressing content and meaning. And to take a word and to make it into a number, to take its letters, break it down, change them into their numbers, mix them up, add them together, take another word. And it's just like, why are you doing that to a word? It's like, how does it, you know? What you're doing is you're taking a word and you're converting it into a number, into a quantity, right? Now, why is he doing that? So the word bakal, is a word which, what's the meaning of bakal is all, is everything. And as we described for average person, how much is bakal? It's infinite. It's unquantifiable. It keeps on going and going and going. But for Avram, what is bakal? It's not infinite. It's finite. It's quantifiable. It's just 52. Oh. So by making it, using gamacha and putting it a number, it's directing our attention to quantity. It's specifically using gamacha because gamacha is a numeric quantitative method. And the reason it's using a quantum is to show us that's the idea. It's pointing us to the idea. Think about Bakal, which is infinite, and it doesn't have a quantity. It keeps on going and going. For Avram, it's Bakal. It's 52. It's a sun. So the, the Gamachu is actually directing our attention, not just to a nice idea, but a very specific type of an idea, which is one which involves the quantity. Hmm. I'm interested in more examples of this. Yeah, I know. Keep that so work. was I. So was I. This, okay. was, this was me 20 years ago. Okay. I had this little Dvar Torah. Was, I, I, this is exactly the response I got. I used to listen to pocket Dvar Torah. I carried around. Anyone ever said, oh, does anyone have a Dvar Torah? I'd be like me. You know, and this is the Dvar Torah I used to say. It was especially good this time of year, Chayisara. But it was, it's a perfect, it's like everyone's always, wow, that's great. And that's the question everyone would always ask me exactly what you're saying, Bensi. Is there, can you do this in other ones? Is this, this is interesting. And I was like, um, I don't know. I'm not really sure, but uh, maybe. You know, and this was like my state of mind for 15 years or something like that. You know, is in the mulling in the back of my mind. I wonder if this is just one interesting thing or is this always the case? And I didn't know. And then it was about five years ago. I don't even I don't remember exactly the one, but um, but basically I was I started. I don't know. I don't remember how I revisited it, but I decided to revisit this. Somehow I brought it up and. And then I started like working. I said, you know what? I'm going to try to work on others. And like, because I think I thought of it in the back of my mind all the time. And it never worked. Like it never worked. It was like a nice idea, but it was a nice theory that it could always be done, but it never worked. And I think like I discovered that I was forcing it and, and I was going about it wrong. And, and the, the, what I mean is, is like, I was always just trying to see it and trying to do the same exact thing. And it, do, it doesn't work. In my experience, it doesn't work. It's like forcing a, an idea. You just can't do that. I don't know, it's not the way ideas work. You can't just force that type of thing. But in my experience was I, I decided to, I don't know how I did, but I decided to like learn the Parsha in which a Gamacho came up on its own. Try to just probe the ideas like I was used to. I, I have experience and my Rabbeim taught me how to analyze a piece of Chamesh, how to analyze a story an area, whatever, and just try to ask questions, learn through it, forget the fact that it's using Gamachia. Like we talked about here, Bakal, we didn't get to the Gamachia until the very end, if you noticed, right? right? Until the, it was all nice and well, even before we even came to Gamachia. So forget the Gamachia part. Learn the area, try to gain insight into it naturally, 
And then at the end, see what happens. See if we could see where is the, is, maybe there's something to do with the Torah emphasizing, emphasizing something significant about quantity and, you know, and I started doing it and it started working. So let me give you, let me give you one example now, just off the cuff. And then maybe with time, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll discuss some more. But just see, here's the problem. Is like, I, I can't rattle off five, 10 examples. Though you can read the book, the Kalak Major figure, this will basically each chapter is another example. But th see, it's not like just quick ideas. It, that's what I was looking for, but it doesn't work. It, it's not the way to get the ideas. You really got to learn through the areas. And that's what I thought was interesting about it in the book is like, I'm not just giving you a list of 100 gmachos and here's the idea. I'm giving you 10 or 15 and learning through the areas and gaining insight into what the story is about, what the mitzvah is about, and then seeing where the gmachia fits in at the end. So it's, so I'll give you one quick example, which I don't talk about much in my book. It's just like a good, I think, quick example. And then hopefully we'll probe some more, a little bit more depth. So just to get an example. So the Torah in... Um, in Dvarim, it's the laning actually on Tisha B'Av. Okay, so it's a sad, sad laning. He's solid banu of Nevanim, but it's it's, it's predicting basically the Galus. And it says when you're going to have offspring and you're going to get v'noshantem ba'aretz, you're going to get old in the land. You're going to be in the land for a long time and you're going to become corrupt and you're going to worship Avodah Zarah and you're going to do that which is evil in the eyes of Hashem. I test, Hashem says, I testify to you today, the heaven and the earth, that you're going to be, perish. You're going to be destroyed quickly from the land. You're not going to live in there, but you're going to be destroyed. Terrible, you know, threat, warning against against us. And this is, it's sad, this is what we read on Tisha B'Av. Okay? So, but the puzzle says, when you have kids, we know Shantem Ba'aretz, you're going to be in the, in the land for a long time. So Rashi on that Pasuk says, it's a hint that they're going to go to Gullus at the end of 852 years. The Gematria of Vinoshantem, trust me on this, trust us on this, is 852. That's what they're going to go to Gullus. But, and, and the Pusik says, you're going to be in Gullus, 852 years, you're going to go to Gullus, and then you're going to be destroyed. Right? You're going to be in the land, I'm sorry, you're going to be in the land for 852 years, and then you're going to Gullus, and you're going to be destroyed. But it says, Rashi says, but Hashem exiled us earlier at the end of 850 years, two years early. Because so that the next pasuk wouldn't apply, because the pasuk says you're going to be you go into Galus after 150 years and then we're going to destroy you. But the Chesed Hashem was ah, oh, he did it two years early, so this way he'd end up destroying us. If he would have done 852, then the rest of the pasuk would have to come true that he would destroy us. But it was Chesed Hashem Hirachlem on us that he only he didn't let it get to the full amount of Noshantem. It was two years earlier, and therefore we ended up not having to be destroyed. So it's hard to make heads or tails of that. What's the point, right? What's the gamacho? What's the point? What does it mean? You know? So I think it means that we think about, we oftentimes think about evil as like a qualitative idea. He's an evil guy. The Jews became sinful, evil, Rishaim, right? But, and it's either like we have these like ideas, the good guy and the bad guy. And they're just these qualitative ideas. But I think Chazal are teaching us evil is, is very much a matter of quantity. How evil are you? If a person is evil for one year, for two years, for three years, it devolves and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And it, and it keeps going. And the Pesach is saying is that you're going to be 852 years. They're not all evil years. They started off good. But it's basically saying at the end of 52 years, you're going to be there for a long time in Oshantam Baratz. And it's going to keep building and building and building. And the evil is going to come to a breaking point where they're basically the only fate which they're going to have is destruction. And that's the Pesach is predicting. But that's 
there that's the path which the navi which the torah is predicting but the chesed hashem was that he stopped it two years early which means before they got to the nth degree of evil the 852nd degree of evil he stopped it two years early as a chesed and now they don't necessarily merit destruction now they're returnable we're capable. There was a Khorban as Chazal say in Tishbab, Hisham took out his anger on the Eitzim Avanim, on the stone, sticks and the wooden stones, and not on the uh, people. So there is a way back. So what it's showing us is that idea about, about the, the way we had a path back and the Rachmanim of Hashem. But it's highlighting the idea is that this concept through using Gematria, it's showing us that Hashem's din is there's quantity in Hashem's din. Hashem measures din. As we say, like we say, the Midah of Tova is five hundred times more than the, than that of um, Roshos. He punishes four generations for Hashem, two thousand generations for Tzadikim. There's quantity in Hashem's judgment, and here it's saying is there's calculated. Hashem is so to speak calculating, and there's eight hundred fifty-two years is a difference of eight hundred fifty years, and that's the idea of like it's showing us quantity in Hashem's den. And you have that also in the next in next week parsha also by same thing which is I talk about more at length in the book of why there was remember the cities of Sodom there are five cities that were going to get turned over but one of them was saved and that was Tzoar because Lot begged for it and he says Imalta Na Shama let me run there please please the gematria of Na is fifty one Nashi says because it was really settled only fifty one years the other ones are fifty two years so that one year made all the difference. Which again, I think, and, and Hashem listened. He was saying it was it was the newest of the cities, and I think it means they did the quantity of evil. They didn't devolve into evil in the same way as the other ones. The other ones had to be flipped over and destroyed, but so I was able to be saved again, because this idea that mishpat Hashem, part of the way Hashem judges, it's directing our attention by using a gematria. It's directing our attention to the nature of the idea. It's an idea which is highlighting the quantitative aspect of the mishpat of Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Amazing, very interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So I actually read the book, and um, Bensi's going to borrow it now. Yeah, but... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm reacting. Because He's reacting in real yet. time. I'm like, ah, I know this yeah. book already. <laughs> no, but, uh, no, but uh, you know, it, it brings up the next uh, question, because you bring up in your book another example of gematrias that are seemingly intellectually dishonest. Okay. Uh, you refer to as patchwork gematrias, quote-unquote, uh, can you give an example of this and what convinced you that it actually displays the brilliance of Chazal? Okay, good question. Good question. So there's actually two things which are very similar, two chapters in the book which are similar. One is called Patchwork Matrios. The other one is called, which I think is more the, the intellectual dishonest one, is the almost the same Gamatrios. Right? Like people, I think most Gamatrios skeptics, what bothers them is when they say, oh, the Gamatrio works out. Oh, it's off by one, but that's okay. Don't worry about it. You're allowed to be off. You know, those are the things which, like, I think are really bothersome. So, I, I think again, there is the patchwork on which is another thing, but I, I'd rather talk about the almost the same because I think it talks to what most people are bothered by and in this intellectually dishonest type of thing. Okay, is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, so almost the same gematria is the example in Chazal. Again, I'm not these again. All the Chazal, all the gematrias they talk about are gematrias of Chazals. Okay, I'm not talking about homemade gematrios. I'm just talking about the, the gematrios which Ramban is claiming. I don't know if everyone agrees with this, but Ramban is saying they're from Misora. So again, I'm assuming that's what I like to think about. I don't like to just think about any random or whatever. I specifically, there's a lot of them in Chazal, and therefore I kind of go with that. Okay, so again, so Zagmara and Makos. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. 
most of you, many of your listeners are probably familiar with it. The Gemara Makos on, on 23b. It's discussing the 613 mitzvahs. And it says there's 613 mitzvahs were sent to Moshe, 365 negative commandments, and 248, and the 367 negative commands corresponding to the days of the solar year, and 248 positive commandments corresponding to the limbs of a person, which is, however, they broke up 248 limbs. Okay. So Rav Hamnuna says, what is the Pasuk which supports this idea that there are 613 mitzvahs in the Torah? So he says, Torah tziva lanu Moshe morasha kilas Yaakov. The Torah, uh, Moshe commands us the Torah. It's a uh, uh, inheritance to the nation, to the congregation of Yaakov, right, of the Jews. So he says, Torah in Gematria is six, uh, so Gemara says, Torah in Gematria is 611. Torah, tough, right, you work it out, 611. And, right, that's not 613, but he says, yeah, but Anochi, it says, Torah Tzivalenu Moshe, Moshe taught us Torah, but Anochi and Loiya, the first two of the Ten Commandments, I am Hashem, your God, and you shall not have any other gods along with me, were said by Hashem. And that's the famous thing Chazal hold, that the first two commandments, again, there's different opinions of Chazal, this Chazal is holding that the first two commandments were said by Hashem himself, or he, the voice that Hashem created, and the Jews heard it, and the other 611 mitzvahs were from Moshe. So it actually works out. Torah, the Gematria, 611. Right, so it's not six and thirteen, but it kind of works because you know you do those two things. But so this is like the the closest example I had in Chazal of like one of these almost the same gematrias because it's kind of like it doesn't really work, but it's kind of you can make it work and it's pretty good, right? It kind of fits because of those other two, but still I think it rubs people wrong when it, it's like precedent for these gematrias that are almost the same but not quite. Yeah, precedent. That's the word I was gonna I would use. Yeah. For, yes. Yeah. Okay, so, so again, so my, my approach, my method in approaching this type of thing is all of them, is to forget the gematria for a little bit and just think about what the, what is the Chazal trying to tell us, okay? So we're not talking about gematria for a little while, okay? And we'll come back to talking about gematria afterwards, okay? So it's telling us about the mitzvahs and the totality of the system of the, of the, of the mitzvahs. It's breaking down the mitzvahs into two classes, those of positive commandments and negative commandments, right? And likening them to the days of the year, the bones of our body, right? And it's also something else which is in the Chazal is it's it's splitting the commandments into 611 and two, right? There's two which were said by Hashem, and then there's 611 which were conveyed by Moshe. Of course, from Hashem, but conveyed by Moshe as the Shleach Hashem. And those two actually happen to be one Asay, Anochi, right? I am Hashem, your God, as a positive commandment to know Hashem, and a negative commandment not to worship Avodazar, not to have other gods besides for me. And what, what, I, what, what I hear the, 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 in this Chazal is that it's almost like depicting classifying all the mitzvahs. It's a classification of all the mitzvahs. There's two primary mitzvahs that we heard from Hashem directly. And then that branches out under each of these two headings. There's almost like paradigms of all the mitzvahs of Asay and of Los Asay. And the one Asay splits up into the two, branches out to 247 others. And the one Los Asay negative branches out to 364 others. So, so, uh, so that being the case, 
I thought maybe we could pursue that a little bit and pursue what is this classification? What is what are mitzvos about? What is the objective of mitzvos? How are they? What are mitzvos designed to do for us? And then what is the delineation of assays and los assays? And and in what way is anochi really a paradigm of you know the major of the whole head of the category for the assays? And what's lo yeah that you shouldn't have other gods? The the head of the paradigm for the other los assays. Sounds good. Great. That's our game plan here. Okay. Okay. So what is the objective? What are mitzvahs for? So big question, but the Ramban talks about it. It's a famous Ramban as your, uh, if whoever is not familiar with it, I'm hoping you're familiar with it or your readers or your, your listeners are familiar with it, but it's classic. One of the best Rambans, in my opinion, in the Torah, which is on, on Shiloh HaKan, on Khan Sipor. Where the you know the sending away the 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 mother bird and right so mm-hmm. he talks about the mitzvahs and I'm going to give you like a snippet of what he says, but uh, I highly recommend for everybody it's in Devarim Chaf Beis Vav twenty two six it's an awesome Ramban, just like a few Rambans just stand out of my mind is that you know and there's another one at the end of Bo anyone's looking for another Ramban like that but these are classics, so um, so he says like this again I, I'm I have the Hebrew for me again I, I'm I'm torn between just reading in English. Or reading the Hebrew, to me, it's like what I like to do. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it from. I'm going to translate it in my head and just say it in English. Because if I read it in English, it just sounds like I'm just reciting something. So I'm just going to. Okay. I'm looking at the Hebrew and I'm just going to explain it. So I'm like talking in my own words. Sure, sure. It says like this. So you can look at it. I think I'm you know as accurate to the text as I could. So it says in each of the mitzvos, there's a reason and a benefit for man besides for the reward that Hashem is going to give us. He says, because the purpose, the benefit of the mitzvahs is not for Hashem himself, who is exalted, who is above, right? But the benefit is for man, which is to prevent him from some sort of a harm, either a bad belief or a bad character trait, or it's to teach him to remember the miracles of the wonders of the creator and so that he'll help him know Hashem. Okay, dot, dot, dot. And also the mitzvahs are to remove from our hearts all b- bad beliefs and to t- make us know the true ideas and to allow us to cause us to remember those true ideas all the time. Dot, dot, dot. Then he says, and therefore, he says, all of the mitzvahs are for our benefit alone. And that's the Pasuk in Eov. It says, if you sin, what could it do to him? If you have many sins, what it, what, it can't harm him. And it says, or what could... What from your hand is he going to take? You can't give him anything. And he says, this, the Ramban says, is accepted, it's unanimous, it's muskam bichol deverbosena. It's accepted in all the words of Chazal. And we even talk about it in Ni'ilah. I mean, you probably say, if we're, if we're, if we're tzaddikim, what could we give to God? And the idea is, is that we can't give anything to God. Hashem created the world. He doesn't need us. He created the world for nothing. We can't help him by giving him, by doing the mitzvahs. But the mitzvahs, he, he's helping us by giving us the mitzvahs. He set up, he wants, he, it's so to speak, his will that the world will have the good, that mankind will be able to live in line with the good. And the mitzvahs are, each mitzvah, the Ramana is saying, is the whole idea of Tameh mitzvahs, mitzvahs are guiding us to be able to, to help us attain the good, that which is good for man. And They're he classifies, tools. what's that? They're tools. They're that... tools, exactly. They're tools to help guide us to live a good life. And Hashem wants us to have the good. And he, Ramban cites, in this Ramban, he cites many psukim. You could go through this. 
about many psikim where it says letov lach, letov lach, letov lach, in various words. The mitzvahs are for your good. It keeps saying it throughout, throughout um, Varim, especially in Varim, maybe elsewhere. But it's always saying the mitzvahs are for your benefit. And and the Raman quotes that he says, and he says it's it's, it's accepted by everybody. And when he talks about the benefits, and again, there's the Rambam talks about this a lot also, but the Ramban, he talks about the benefits. He he classifies, there's, it seems like there's a, a subdivision in terms of the benefits of, again, there's various ways to subdivide it, okay? The, the, but I'm going to choose one specific one, which I think is relevant to this Hazal, which is Aseiz and Los Aseiz. And like he describes, he says, it's to teach you good ideas so that you remember the miracles and, and you always know about Hashem and you're always thinking about Hashem. And that's what Aseiz are about. And when it comes to, or to remove, prevent you from a harm whether it be a physical harm or a false belief or a bad character trait, right? So it's like assays and los assays are like split up into these two, two, two different objectives. And it's sor me ra, the tov, right? Turn away from bad and do good. It's like kind of two parts of our life. We have to remove ourselves from negative influences and we have to grab hold of the positive. And in general, assays are grabbing hold of positives and los assays are, are avoiding negatives. You with me? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so let's talk about Anochi and Loiya, right? If, if this is the claiming here, is the Chazala kind of saying there are these two classes of mitzvahs, and at the head of them, the two that we heard from Hakadosh Baruch Hu are Anochi and Loiya. I am Hashem, your God, and you shall not have other gods besides me. So Anochi, the Ramban, once again, he says like this. He says this mitzvah, Anochi Hashem, is a mitzvah. It's a positive mitzvah. He says it's uh it's teaching us and commanding us. This is the Ramban and Shemos. Um, Chaf Beis, 22. So it says, um, it's teaching us, commanding us that we should know and believe that there is Hashem and He is a God for them. Namely, He exists. He is first, Kadmon, He's he's the first. From Him, everything emerges through His will. He's like His will. It doesn't... Okay, I don't want to go into that at depth right now, but... And He has the Yecholas. He has the ability... To do it, to do everything, to right, and he is the God. He's um, he's the judge, he's the God, and we're uh, uh, therefore we're obligated to serve him, and that's why it says, "Anochi Hashem Alakach, I am Hashem your God." who took you out of Mitzrayim. He said, "Now the Ramban continues because taking us out of Mitzrayim teaches us about Hashem's existence." And this is the Ramban at the end of Bo elaborates on this. That one I was talking about that, that's the Ramban at the end of Bo where he elaborates about this. But this is in short. He says. He takes us on teaches about his existence, right? He, obviously, he's doing all these miracles. He exists. And he has will that man should do certain things, live a certain life. And because through his knowledge and through his providence, he took us out of Mitzrayim. So like the fact that he took us out of Mitzrayim shows he exists. He's involved in the world. He wants man to live a certain type of way. And he says it also teaches about creation because if you have eternity of the universe, Aristotle's theory of eternity of the universe, nothing could change from its nature. Everything has an eternal fixed nature. So the miracles teaches the fact that he created that there's creation. Since he created the world, he could change the world. And it teaches about his ability. And that teaches about his unity, his yichad. And he says, Psak. I mean, that's why it's saying, again, each of these demands a longer discussion. But he says, that's why it says, because the Yisias Mitzrayim is that which taught us was witness testimony to us about all the fundamental ideas of the Torah. And the Ramban is saying this in this one mitzvah. The mitzvah of is the mitzvah of knowledge of God. Knowledge of God, study about Yitzhak and study all the ideas, all the lessons that we learned from Yitzhak. 
And that's this major mitzvah, this, the heading, the one mitzvah Hashem told us, the mitzvah say, is to know about God's existence, know about all the lessons that are derived from the makos, from the from Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And in a sense, that's a paradigm of all mitzvahs, I say, is that all the mitzvahs are to teach us ideas, to incul inculcate those ideas into our lives, to help us in eternalize truths about God, about Torah, about His will, about the values of the Torah. For example, we take a little of an esrog at the time when we have all our agricultural success and we feel all haughty. Look at me, I'm the great farmer, I'm successful, I'm rich. And you shake it and you bring it to, to before Hashem, to the Mikdash or wherever, and you're saying, Hashem kito chasto. I thank Hashem that He's great and His kindness is everlasting. Ana Hashem Ana Hashem, please save us. So it reminds us, it takes us out of that feeling of our own greatness for our success and it helps remind us. We give tzedakah. We feel, again, same thing. We have a lot of money. We make money. But when we give tzedakah, we recognize me. We realize the money is from Hashem. He has <clears throat> those people he wants to, he wants us to support. We daven helps us remember Hashem, that he's in the one who's in charge of our needs. We can't ultimately accomplish our needs and we have to turn to Hashem. We wear tefillin, sitzis, mezuzah, remind us not to take security in our body, in our clothing, in our homes. But we have these things remind us throughout all mitzvahs, I say, in some form or other, are actions we do to bring to our mind's eye various truths of the Torah, to teach us lessons about Amidos, about Hashem, in some form or other. And that's what I think it's saying, is that Anochli Hashem said, and that's the head of a category of mitzvahs, I say, of all mitzvahs, they come under that. Moshe Rabbeinu elaborated on Anochli. Anochli, ultimately, all the mitzvahs, you could say, I say, are to bring us to recognize Hashem. Shem's existence. But that's too, it's too, just to say anochi, it doesn't work for us. We live in our world. And as Sefer Chinuch says, man is moved by his actions. Just to say, here's an idea, make your whole life, build your whole life around it, it doesn't work. Maybe for some philosopher, but for us or people, we live in the world, we need actions to direct our mind's eye towards the true ideas of the Torah. And that's what I'm saying is all the mitzvahs, the 247 mitzvahs are, uh, say, are elaborations in every, like every bone of our body. Every aspect of our of our lives should be directed towards these ideas, towards recognizing Kodesh Baruch Hu. And that's the idea. It's like everywhere, throughout the, the, the Toju's life, we always have reminders of, of Kodesh Baruch Hu. Beautiful. Okay, so that's Asseis. That's Mrs. Asseis. Now, that, that's Anochi, and that's all the category of positive commandments. But then you have the negative commandments, which says, Lo You shouldn't have any other gods besides me. So... That is that that I think also is a paradigm of Los Asseis. And this is a, a Rambam, but it's based on the Gemara, the Gemara and Kedushin on 40a and the Dharam 25a. But it's the Rambam in, in um Hilchazabad Zara, Vaskalos 2.4. And he says, and this is I'm sure you, you've heard of this before, but it's a mitzvah of Zara, it corresponds is Kneged, corresponds to all the mitzvahs of the Torah. And he cites a Pasuk which supports it. And it says, um, it teaches you. That anyone who admits about Avodah Zarah is denying the whole Torah and all the Nevi'im and, and everything Nevi'im commanded from Adam all the way till the end. And anybody who denies Avodah Zarah is admitting in the whole Torah and in all the Nevi'im and everything like that. Because if who Iker Kalamitzas Kulam, it's the foundation of all the mitzvahs. So, how is that? What does that mean? How is it that if you deny Avodah Zarah, you're accepting all the mitzvahs? There's a lot of mitzvahs. How so? And if you Except the Vodazara, then you're denying all the mitzvahs. Like, what, what does it mean? Right? What are Chazal teaching us? Why is Vodazara seems to be so limited? You just bow down to an idol. What does that have to do 
with all the other mitzvahs in the Torah. Because right. these both are like tools. It's again, it's building on the same idea. They're if tools. It's the paradigm. Then, right. yep. Okay. To, to eradicate Avodah from the world, they're they're actually doing the job of eradicating. Okay. okay, good, good. So, so let me just elaborate a little bit on what is Avodah Zarah. Okay, what is Avodah Zarah? Where does it come from? Why are people bowing down to idols? What's the whole motivation? What's so foundational about Avodah Zarah? As I'll say, Avram Avinu had, like, I forgot, 300 Masechtas about Avodah and we barely know it. But it was like, Avram Avinu studied Avodah And Avodah was prevalent. And, like, people think of it like, oh, there's Avodah Zarah nowadays, so there's nothing to talk about anymore. Who, that's the whole Torah. The Torah is saying the whole liquor of the Torah is Avodah Zarah. So Avodah is like a person at its core form. Is a person is like, um, when a person is a child, we, have, we take our parents, hopefully take care of our needs. And we cry and our mom comes and feeds us and all that. And we kind of feel like our parents are like Superman and Superwoman. And they have, they're have there at our beck and call. And everything we want is taken care of. And we live in this naive world that everything is there for us. All our needs are there. But then when we grow up, we kind of get a, a rude awakening. And we realize our parents aren't really as strong as we thought they are. And we don't really have the security that we believed we had as youth. And it's very scary. And... Oftentimes, what do you do about that fear? And oftentimes what people do is, uh, this is the root of idolatry. And again, there's a lot of branches of this and other versions of it, but as man invents false gods who could cater, allay our fears and satisfy our wishes and our fantasies. And people project their fears and their wishes onto the world. And by making up these gods, and they say, you just have to do all these things in order to propitiate the gods and to make the gods happy and to all that. And they, they delude themselves into giving themselves a feeling of security. And that's kind of the root of idolatry, is the, the, the root and the path, which Vodazara uh, you know, partakes of, is that man, because of our insecurities, we're looking for something. We're looking for our safety, security, you know, our wishes to be satisfied, our fears to be protected, you know, guarded against. And that's why man is a strong desire to have this thing which you could believe in. And you make it up. And in a certain sense, you could say, the essential difference between the Torah and Avodah Zarah is the Torah is about truth and embracing truth. And Avodah Zarah is rooted in your wishes, in the wishes and the imagination of childish Shortcuts. primitive. What's that? Shortcuts. Yeah, also. shortcuts, exactly. So, like, so I love this. A great, there's a great thing my Rabbi Avichai pointed out, I, I think it was from him, is that we say in Aleinu every day, three times a day. And, and we highlighted on Rosh Hashanah and in the Musaf, which is, we say, They bow down to emptiness and nothingness, to a God that doesn't save them, right? You'd think, what would we say? And we bow to a God who does save us. But that's not what it says. We bow before the King of Kings. He spread out the heavens and the foundation of the world. We don't serve God because he helps us. We serve God because he's true, because he exists and he is the foundation of the world. He happens to help us. And when it's great, we're fortunate for that. And we're happy about that. But ultimately, Torah is about embracing truth. And Avodah Zarah is about looking for a God who protects us, who saves us. It's looking because of our fears is making up false realities to satisfy our wishes, our instincts, our desires. And that's like kind of the essence of, Avodah, uh, of Torah is to, to train us to view the world based upon knowledge, based upon truth, based upon what's real and what exists, ultimately, like Baruch Hu and his world. 
and to remove us from the false values, whether they be gods, whether they be money, whether they be pleasure, whether they be fame. There's a lot of different values and different people look for a security and for these this make-believe you know, sense of self from a lot of things which are make-believe values and superficial values. It doesn't have to be idols. It might be, again, it might be Hollywood. It might be whatever the case is. It might be money. It might be Wall Street. Whatever we, power, whatever we make the ultimate reality in our lives. That's, that's, that's exactly, our exactly. And that's what the Torah, I think it means. is like not, the whole Torah is a brooding of a desire. It doesn't mean bowing to idols alone. It means the mentality of the Vodazara, who is bending the world to fit his primitive wishes. As opposed to the Torah personality is bending his wishes to fit in with what's true and what's real. And in that sense, I think it's all Losa says in specific, don't, don't, don't pursue endless like the sexual and petty restrictions are basically saying you have this feeling that the that pleasure is the ultimate good. And they're saying that's a false value. And through restricting our involvement in pleasures, it helps gain control over that false value. Or there are monetary restrictions. And we have this idea that we get money at all costs. And who cares about the other guy? And all the laws involving money help us get, rein in our sense of pursuit of money to, to all end. And we have limits on that. We have laws about ribis and laws about ana and you know usury and fraud and things like that. Or we have interpersonal relations where we're all it's all about a popularity contest. And we have this other vodzara of everybody liking us and all that. And therefore people involved in gossip and slander and jealousy and all that. So there's all kinds of low is prohibiting us from various forms of pettiness and involvement in, you know, attacking other people. So it's like all los. That's I feel more the class of losa says is avodazara is like the head of all of them, all their gods. But all losa says, in a certain sense, are things which harm us, which embodied the mentality of the avodazara. And in that sense, I think these two mitzvahs, again, this second mitzvah which we heard from God is a paradigm, is the head of a category for losa says for the second objective of the Torah, the sor Ra, the remove evil, and combine the two of them. Anochi and Loya, we heard from Akash Baruchu. And oh, sorry. And the and there again, the Asay, Anochi is the heading of every bone of our body, every aspect of our life should be directed towards knowing Hashem. And this every day, 365 days of a year, every walk of life, we have to always be on guard for all the different aspects of our lives, things pulling us in all different directions and avoiding the Vodzara type of substitute in every single aspect of our lives. You know, this part, this segment actually really resonated with me the most because I always looked at that as like a strange thing, the the 611 plus the two. Mm-hmm. But the way you explained it, it really just shows, the like you said, the brilliance of Chazal is evident over here. Mm-hmm. And it's something that if anyone who's listening to this for the first time, this is really the theme of our podcast to get rid of magical thinking, idolatrous thinking, superstition and all of that. Because that, that just fogs up our brains to seeing things clearly and, and understanding that what is the crux? What is the point of all this? Why are we doing mitzvot? Right. So yeah. one of the things I I go through is when I, let's say I'm teaching a class or I'm introducing these ideas to certain people, there's always that initial pushback being like, right. what do you mean? But are you trying to say that like, you know, you're I'm taking away people's teddy bear in a way. Right, it's, right, right. Like, what do you mean? I can't. When I, when I just say random words on a piece of paper and I don't understand what they mean and I'm just right. using it as like an incantation that doesn't actually do anything. Right. So I say, well, I have to explain to them and 
sometimes what happens is that there's like a kind of a, you know, shattering of the world of their worldview. Yeah. And yeah. it's very delicate because you got to give them something to pick up the pieces. Yeah, um, so anyway, I, w I wanted to bring that in because I felt like this analysis to me, when I, when I read this, it was so clear to me that the yeah. Chachamim were like, you know, they weren't using this haphazardly. This is a very, very important gematria. To me, it right. was like, it, it's, it's really like, it just shows right, what, because, how brilliant it is. Right, because it's separating, it's 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 putting into two categories, the paradigms versus the yeah. not, where yeah. everything that follows from those paradigms. Exactly. And you don't yeah. get to that until they don't force it through the gematria for you to see that. that <clears throat> Exactly. It's exactly. really well done because this one is the most, to me, the most convincing. I, I the other ones are still nice ideas, right. but this idea was just like, wow! It's very hard to convince Benji. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't really discussed the gamacho yet, if you noticed. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. So I was gonna say, I was actually... it's, we still have to tie it into why he's using gamacho to teach this, right? Right. Okay. So, f so flesh out so, the point. Correct. So, okay. So. So again, this is this is the this is what I this is the type of thing I'm talking about though. We have to, don't think about we don't go to the quantity or whatever until later. So now, if you think about it like this, is that there are these two objectives of the Torah, okay? The the of Aseto, avoid the evil and then attach yourself to the good, expanding on Anochi, on I Hashem your God, and expanding on Avodah <clears throat> Now, those are like you could say the qualitative themes objectives of the Torah. But how we, how many mitzvahs do you need to do that? You could imagine there being Anochi and three mitzvahs and positive mitzvahs and Eliyah and seven losases. Or you could have imagined Anochi and 50 million mitzvahs and 20 million losases, right? There's, or anywhere in between, right? There's no specific amount. So like the Torah is, is more than just these two overarching objectives, but there's a certain quantity of the mitzvahs, there are 248 essays, there are 365 essays. And is that by design, or did Hashem just, so to speak, throw darts in however many stock? Of course not. And now Hashem is, of his wisdom is beyond us, and I don't think we could claim to know how many, how we figured out the right balance, but you could see it at least in an overarching way. If there was only a few mitzvahs, it wouldn't be enough. We, we are creatures of habit, we are creatures of actions, and if you just had these and then a few essays and a few essays, it wouldn't be enough. We'd get stuck in the world of our nonsense that we get drawn in by. We already do, right? And it, would just, it wouldn't be enough to pull us out, to remind us of Hashem enough, to help us avoid the pitfalls of Odzara in all of its terrible forms. On the same time, if there were millions of mitzvahs, it would be overwhelming. We wouldn't be able to think. We wouldn't be able to live. We wouldn't be able to conduct our lives. And there's a sweet spot, there's a fine tuning, there's a balance about just how much, how many mitzvahs are necessary. And I think the Chazal are telling us when we study mitzvahs, besides for studying the qualitative beauty of the system of mitzvahs and each and every mitzvah, the ideas that we can learn from the mitzvahs and see how it benefits us, there's also something to appreciate is there's the right amount of mitzvahs. Hashem knows our nature. He'd created us. And I think that's what he's like, someone was asking me, a stock of Baris of I looked into the world and created Torah and created the world. It's like the Torah is a matched up with the human personality. There's no, it's not like the Torah just slapped on at the end, some ad hoc thing. It's uh, Hashem made the Torah and he made us. And there's the right balance. And this is the right amount of mitzvahs. Hashem fine-tuned the precise number of mitzvahs which are necessary. And by using gematria, it's directing our attention towards 
don't forget that aspect of studying in the mitzvahs. There is a perfect balance in the right amount. And while I can't prove that's the right number, there is it rings true that it's about too many would be overwhelming and too few just wouldn't be quite enough. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. That is incredible. I have to digest that. <clears throat> Why should there be a method of drash specifically focusing on quantity? Is there some great significance of quantity? Okay, good question. Good question. So I wondered that. I wondered that. And I, I think it's interesting. Uh, what I'm claiming here is, and again, this is the claim, and I'm, uh, you know, this is what the book is trying to convince you of. And whether you're convinced or not, I guess you'd have to, you know, read the book to assess fully. But I'm claiming that Chazal, I don't know of every single Gematria, but I'm claiming Chazal used Gematria specifically, not just to allude to ideas and to teach ideas, but to allude to specific types of ideas, to highlight the significance of quantity in a given area. And the claim is that's what, and again, all the ideas in this in the book are presenting are those types of things. It's like almost like um, a clue, if you will, a hint. Look deeper here. Think about the area in general, but then think maybe there's some new insight, nuance, subtlety here, which you wouldn't have necessarily noticed. And it's a good question is, are there other types of methods of drash which reference different types of ideas? I have no idea. That's an open question. But what's significant in that quantity? You might, one may say, why quantity? I mean, I'm a mathematician, so well, yeah, of course, you think quantity is a great thing. But like, what's the significance of quantity? And why should there be a method of, of, of drash specifically devoted towards that, right? Is there one for art or is there one for other subjects? Like, why a quantity? What's the thing, right? So, so let me digress for a moment, okay? Because I think it's, quantity, we'll see, is a very significant part of the world, of the way Hashem created the world. And specifically, there's a name, one of the names of Hashem uh, is specifically referencing the idea of quantity, according to Sadigon and Nevarbanel. So, and Chazal. So basically, there's a Gemara, specifically, the names of Hashem, as probably many of you know, and not just he has a lot of names, like a person has a lot of nicknames, the names of Hashem, each name references, reflects different ideas that we know about a Baruch Hu. So most famously, Shem of Yudke is referenced to me, this Rachman. Elohim, which also, also means judges, is referenced to Hashem's me, this Adem. Kel, which means might. El is used by other people. Elehar, it's like mighty, powerful, references Hashem's might. And all the names, they have referenced different ideas about Hashem. So Hashem has a lot of names, because the names point to different ideas and different ways that we think about Hashem, the ways that Hashem relates to the world, and so on. So what about the name Shin Dalid Yud? I'm going to say sh Shek Shakai. So there's many ways to say it. You can't say it in the way it's actually pronounced. So you say Shakai or Shadai. The real way is Shadai. Okay, but whatever. So I'm just going to say that name Shakai. We'll say it. Okay, that's the way people often pronounce it. What does that name mean? It's a weird name. What is it supposed to refer to? Refer to? So there's a lot of different interpretations of what it means. But there's a Gemara in Chagiga which talks about it, this Chagiga Yedbeiz Amaral, 12a, and discusses the following. It says, when Hashem, Rabbi Yudam says, when Hashem was making the world, he says, it continued to expand like two balls of a warp, whose cord lengthened as they unravel, until the Holy One Blessed Be, he rebuked it and made it stand still. As it is stated, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his, at his rebuke. Okay. And this is the same, and now it says like this. This is the same as 
Rish Lakish said. Rish Lakish says, what does it mean, Ani Kel Shakai? I am Kel Shakai, this name of Hashem. So what does that mean? I am Hashem, She'amarti Olam Dai. I am the one, She Dai. means that enough. I am Hashem who said to the world enough. And that's what the Chazal is saying, is the world was like expanding as these balls or whatever this cosmological theory is, but the world was expanding out and there's like two balls or whatever until Hashem said, stop, enough. And that's what's saying the name Shekai is saying is he's referencing that Hashem said to the world, enough. And then it continues. It says, um, similarly, Rish Lakish says, when Hashem was creating the Yam, the sea, the sea was rising, like the level of the sea, sea level was rising until Hashem, like, so to speak, got angry at it, Garbo, he yelled at it or he rebuked it, and it stopped. And it, and it dried up. And similarly, this is referencing this idea of Ani Kel Shakai, I am Hashem is Almighty, who said to the world enough. What does that mean? He said to it, enough. And I think what this means is that he fixed the quantities of the world. The world, if we study science, and this is true back in the days of Chazal, it's true even more so in modern science. But when you study the world, there are certain qualitative components in the world. There is the, the planets and the heavens, and there is the sea, and there's the dry land, and there are unbelievable features of this world. But besides for the qualitative features of them, there are quantitative features. There's how big is the world? How high is sea level? If the sea level were a little bit higher, we'd all be drowned. If it was lower, there wouldn't be enough water. So there's like, there's a balance in all the different facets of creation. And what the Chazal are saying is that he said to the world, enough. Shaddai is a reference to the fact that Hashem fixed in creating the world. He didn't only create all of, all the qualitative components of our beautiful world, but he fixed the quantities of that world. And it's emphasizing that idea. And Chazal, we see the Pesach can tell him, Monin nispar lakochavim l'chulam sheh mozikra. He sets the counts the numbers of the stars and to all of them he has names. So there's tons of stars, but it's depicting the idea that there's a quantity of the stars. There's a number. And Hashem, when he made the world, he's he fixed the quantities of the major component of Chachma is the quantities. As anyone who's designing anything knows, it's not just enough to have the qualitative design, but you have to fine-tune all the different components of it to be perfectly right. And that idea I'm saying is. In a certain sense, the name of Shakai is referring to Hashem as the fine-tuner. He fixed the laws, he fixed the quantities of the universe properly. And Rasadi Gon of Arbanel maintained that's a plain meaning of the word. That's like pshat, of what shat, so that name means. And this idea of, again, this in their cosmology, they had it that there were like these balls of warp or whatever the case is. And sea level is still true nowadays. We also so we know that the size of the oceans is a major part in science of like what allows life to be stable and the world to be stable. But modern science, specifically quantity, I think has become even more high, highlighted. As Galileo talked about, the language of math, the language of the universe is mathematics. There's a famous quote of, quote of Galileo which talks about it. This is like the, the world, the way we modern science has realized to understand science, physics, Anyone who studied physics or any science, most sciences, realizes there's, language, there's math throughout. Chemistry, largely physics, and it's the language of our universe is mathematics. And when we study the laws of the nature, when, when physicists study the laws of nature, they realize that there are qualitative laws of our universe. Like, for example, there's gravity, gravitational attraction between any two masses attract. 
And then there's also like electromagnetic force, which is that like opposite charges attract. So these are like two forces, which in a certain sense have certain qualitative similarity of that they things attract. But then there's also the quantitative dimensions to them. How strongly do masses attract? How strongly do opposite charges attract? And it turns out the gravitational attraction, the electromagnetic force is about 10 to the 36th power. That's one with 36 zeros stronger than gravity. And this is the types of things scientists have realized that they've studied our universe and they realize that our universe is defined by these fixed laws of nature. And there's beautiful laws, there's general relativity and there's quantum mechanics. But besides for these two sets of laws, which they're always trying to unify, there are also quantities, they're what they call constants of nature. There's like 25 or so constants of nature. There are these numbers that are built into the very fabric of our universe. For example, the electromagnetic force is measured by something called the fine structure constant. Don't worry if you don't follow the particulars of the, or any of your listeners don't follow the particulars of the physics, they're not really relevant. But the fine structure constant is a number, it's, I'll tell you the number, it's 0.08542455. That measure is a measure which measures the strength. It's a probability, but it has something to do with the measure of the strength of electromagnetic force. That number, is very significant. It's also what's called, and this is this is an idea that scientists started to discover in the 1970s, 80s, more into 2000, 1998, the idea of fine-tuning, that these numbers, they, they thought previously these numbers are just whatever, they happen to be any numbers. But scientists started, started to realize that they're very, very significant. And if the numbers were different, they would be far off. So I'm going to read you a quote here from the scientist named Leonard Susskind, who's um, actually Jewish, but he's an atheist, in a book called The Cosmic Landscape. On page 175, he says, what if the fine structure constant were bigger? Say about one. This would create several disasters, one of which would endanger the nucleus, dot, dot, dot. What would happen if the electric force were as strong as the nuclear force? Then all complex nuclei would be unstable. In fact, the electric force could be a, deal, a good deal weaker than the nuclear force and still endanger nuclei like carbon and oxygen. Why is a fine structure constant small? No one knows. But if it were bigger... There would be no one to ask the question. This is one example of something. This number is a specific number, but it's the right number. Hashem fixed. He said to the olam, die. He said enough. Another example, I don't want to do too many, but one more example is this is the biggest example which made scientists realize this fine-tuning thing is real. Something called a cosmological constant, which actually talks about the speed that the universe, the early universe is expanding. Similar to what the Chazal is referencing on other world is about expanding out. It's called a cosmological constant. The number is very, very small. I should really say very, 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 very small. It's three times 10 to the negative 122nd power. That's point zero 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 one hundred and twenty one zeros, and then the number three. That's a measure of the size of, of, of how fast this universe is expanding. If it were greater... If it, were, if it were greater, then the universe would be expanding too fast and there would be enough time for anything to come together, any stars, any, any planets, any, anything to form. If it were a smaller number, then everything would crunch together. It would expand too slow and gravity would pull it together and there would also be no ability for anything to form. The number is fine-tuned very, 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 very precisely. And scientists, they call this the fine-tuning problem. It's a problem for physicists because how in the world could you explain why these numbers are so precise and they're fixed in this exact numbers. Now, if you say, I, I, I think it seems to be clear. And again, I'm in the middle of writing a book with a Chavrusa of mine, 
Rabbi Zimmer told God versus multiverse, and we present the case how these numbers are evidence of shakai, of the idea of a fine tuner. And scientists have another alternative theory, which is called multiverse, which is like there's infinitely many universes out there, and in each one of these universes, these numbers are different, and we happen to be in the one lucky universe, which is, you know, the right numbers. So it's a fanciful theory, which again, the point of the book is to hopefully we're going to make a podcast about it coming yeah, in the course. next few months. But basically, we're going to be talking the about it. That's what well, you're just moving the goalposts. Yeah, exactly. So the book is like, again, it's, it's a, there's serious scientists who say this, and therefore it has to be taken seriously, obviously. They're great, they're great thinkers. And that's the point of our book, and we're going to try to talk about it. But the point, my point is to say that, that the quantity is actually a sign, an indication, the chachma of Hashem's creation of Shekai. He said to the word, the world, die. He said to the world, enough. I'll give you another one more quote from Stephen Hawking, who's a famous scientist. You probably, I'm sure you're all tired of him, but he's recently passed away. And he's also an atheist. Most of the fundamental constants, these are constants, these numbers, in our theories appear fine-tuned in the sense that if they were altered by only modest amounts, the universe would be qualitatively different, and in many cases unsuitable for the development of life. The emergence of the complex structures capable of supporting intelligent observers seems to be very fragile. The laws of nature form a system that is extremely fine-tuned, and very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life as we know it. Again, these are indications of the significance of she Kai, that he said to the word enough. Quantity is built into the fabric of our universe. Hashem's chachma is manifest in the fine-tuning of the universe. Hashem's chachma is manifest in the fine-tuning of the Torah to have 248 essays and 365 los essays. It's the same creator, and part of his wisdom is manifest by the particular quantities and it's not a small thing quantity. It's part of the major element of the Chokmah Hashem. It's one of the, I think, seven names of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Shakai. It's a big deal. It points to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And to have a method, my point is this idea of quantity, and you can see through the various examples that I take up, it's everywhere. And Hashem's Mishpat, that we talked about before, and Hashem demands and judges the world. Part of the judgment is quantity of 2,000 generations, four generations. Chokmah, anything with Chokmah involves quantity. It's a big part of Chokmah, of wisdom. And having a method specifically devoted to direct our attention towards the quantitative dimension of a specific area is enlightening and it helps highlight a path to direct us towards insight. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I actually wanted to add this. I've mentioned this before in the podcast, I believe with uh, Dr. Gerald Schroeder and even an episode of Dabai Maruf, uh, but I always found it so interesting. I, I follow like, um, you know, Richard Dawkins and, and um, Christopher Hitchens, all famous atheists, to hear their perspective on things. And right. I always find that, like, in certain areas, like, for example, Christopher Hitchens, he couldn't he couldn't dismiss the fine-tuning argument. He even said it himself. He's like, you know, that's one of the arguments that I have a very hard time with. It's not trivial. We can't just uh -huh. dismiss it. It's convincing. He also said something interesting that if if uh, he had one more person, just he, he eradicated all of the... Uh, believers in God in the world, but there was just one more guy who who uh, who's left, and he believes in God. He's like, I wouldn't change him. I don't know why, but I wouldn't change him. And Dawkins really got upset with that. Dawkins <laughs> himself, you know, when presented with, um, you know, his quote unquote Rebbe uh, yeah. Anthony, Anthony Flew, um, you know, at his 
late in his life, he dis discovered once once he discovered DNA and its implications, he's like, this is clearly like, there's a fine tuning going on here too. There's a signature yeah. DNA. It's, it's obvious. Yeah. How can I yeah. deny? There must be a creator. Yeah. So Dawkins, you know, Dawkins comes along and says, well, yeah, yeah. He says, yeah. he says, well, yes, there is a signature in DNA. We don't, we can't explain it, but I, it just can't be God. It's, it's got to be something. It's got to be an, an alien extraterrestrial yeah. life. But then again, it's moving the goalposts because who yeah. created those aliens? Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. yeah, I wanted to Definitely. point that out. It's, it's very interesting for those who are listening. I know we have some skeptics and atheists who do listen to the podcast. So that one. Yeah. Out. Yeah. So the, again, we hope to come out with this book we're looking for a publisher at this point, but it's, um, you know, we really try to take this argument and make it rigorous. So we're not just, you know, you could say the argument in five minutes, but we try to give it a much more formal, rigorous treatment. Yeah. And I told you off camera, but blog O'Shea, the blog that you had <laughs> on the multiverse, uh, I, read it, I don't know if it was like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And it was like one of the most eye opening things I read from, from rabbis. Right. Um, it wasn't just like the typical, you know, run of the mill, uh, you yeah. know, foreign science thing. It was really, really well yeah. thought out. Um, and it's, I don't know if it still exists. That blog. I don't think it's online, but, you know, we, I have drafts of it. I could get uh, interested parties. Okay, great. So um, I don't know if you have time for one more. Okay, we can take one more. Okay, so um, again, we're going to be touching on quantitative again. In chapter seven, where you discuss <clears throat> Haman's money. And tree, you uncover the reason why some gematrias make numerical connections that seem unrelated to each other on the surface. You concluded that the gematria here teaches an important life lesson, that we must always pay attention to the quantitative elements of our plans. Can you share your insights into approaching such subtleties? Yes. Yeah, I'd love to. So I, I like talking about this because somehow it seems in, in my heart and everyone I talk to's heart, there's like a special place for Miguel Esther. It's just like somehow it's the best story, you know, of all stories. It's it's so touching on many levels. And I was fortunate to have um, great Rabbi and Rabbi Chad and Rabbi Mann who've given many shirim over the years to really elucidate a much deeper read in the Megillah than necessarily we see at first sight. So I'd like to, in that context present um, the, the Gematria, which is uh, regarding Miguel Sester, and to elucidate it. But I'm going to kind of tell some of the story of the Megillah, maybe from like a little bit of a deeper perspective than we necessarily um, see. Okay, so <clears throat> let's just get the facts here. So in Megillah, in Esther 3.11, so um, we know Haman had this plan to kill the Jews. And he offered to finance the plan, Right. He offered to finance the plan. So um he gave um he gave he offered to um to that he's gonna pay for you know all the money, right? And then Ahashverosh responded to him, the money is given to you, and the nation is given over to you to do whatever you want. Okay, so hakesef, hakesef, the money is given over to you. So there's a tosvos in Megillah 13b. Who says the following? Gematria de ha kesef, the gematria of the word ha kesef. You can't tell how much it is, I forget. Ola ha eitz. It's the same ha eitz, the tree and the money is the same gematria. Remezlo sheyidla alav. It's a hint to, as I guess, Achashverosh's hint to Amon that he's going to be hanged on a tree. Okay? So he said, ha kesef, the money is given to you. He's saying, he's hinting that the tree, namely you're going to be hanged on a tree. Okay? 
So obviously, it's hard to interpret this at face value. Ahasuerus was not telling Haman, you're going to be hanged on a tree. He was telling him, take the money. You could keep the money. I don't need your money. I'll do this, you know, and you could destroy the Jews. And the plan went into action. He wasn't telling him about a tree. So what in the world is it saying that he's hinting to him that he's going to end up being hanged on a tree? And what's the connection? Ha-kesef, ha-eitz, they're just totally different things. A tree and money. I mean, you know, it's like a nice <clears throat> insight into the end of the story, but it just sounds like one of these contrived connections. But I think the chapter in the book is called like strange connections or something. It's just like the words are just totally unrelated on the surface. Okay. So, so once again, I think the way to gain insight <coughs> is to ignore the Gematria and study the Megillah and try to understand what the Megillah is going on in the story there. And what is the significance of HaKesef, of the money? And then maybe once we understand it a little bit, we'll be able to see how it connects up with the tree and why Gamachia is the way to, talk, to teach it to us. Sounds good? Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So what is the significance of this money? Okay. Muhammad offered to pay for this whole um, you know, program of eradicating all the Jews. And why is it significant? And how do I know it's significant? So in fact, when... when Mordechai told Esther. Remember, Mordechai was like uh, crying and in, uh, in the in the gates of the, of the king, and Esther's like, "What are you doing? What's going on here?" Right? And he told him to like, give him clothing, change into right. So it says, So Mordechai told her, told the messenger to tell her what happened. And the money that Haman said that he was going to pay to destroy the Jews. So specifically, when Mordechai was telling Esther what occurred, he didn't just say about the plan, but he said about the money. So apparently, this monetary offer was a big deal. Hmm. Why was it a big deal? It just sounds like a detail. He offered the money. The king said, I don't need the money. Whatever. Why, what's so important? So the question is, why did Haman offer to pay for it? And I think the answer is relatively straightforward. Is that Haman knew Ahasuerus loved money. Right? He was into showing off all his wealth and all his money. And Haman had this idea of saying the Jews are bad. <laughs> They're bad news. We got to get rid of them. And that's great. That was his plan. But he knows that when you propose a bill, anyone could propose a bill, but who's going to pay for it? And there's costs involved in it. And eradicating all the Jews is going to be an expensive proposition. And it's possible Haman wants to push his bill through, and he doesn't want to run into the resistance of Ahasuerus, who's going to say, whoa, how much is this going to cost, right? So what he did is he said to, <clears throat> he said to him, listen, I, I am so committed to the fact that this is so important for our nation that I'm willing to put the foot the bill. Okay, I'm willing to put the foot the bill. It's so important. I know I can't live. I'm so committed to this. Don't let the money be an obstacle. I'm willing to personally fund the plan because it's that important. I'll put my money where my mouth is. Anyone could propose a bill that other people should pay for. But I'm telling you how committed I am to this thing, that I know, I'm confident that this is the best, that I'm willing, don't let the money be an obstacle. And then Ahasuerus responds back, forget it, keep the money. I don't need your money. But the, the, it wasn't about that Ahasuerus needed the money. He convinced him. He showed, Ahaman showed Ahasuerus that he's fully committed to the plan. And it worked. And that's part of what, what um, Mordechai was telling Esther. This is bad news. This is a plan that Haman did it, and he's willing to foot the entire bill. There's no, there's nothing that's going to get in the way of this plan. The money is not an issue. Haman's willing to pay for the whole thing. 
he, the fact that he did that shows how committed he is to it. And the fact that this is not, don't think this is going to fall and fail because of the fact of the, of the money. It's not going to fail. That's not going to get in the way. And that's part of why he was saying, this is, this is drastic. We got to do something serious. This is a major catastrophe about to unfold. And don't think it's just going to fall away. There's a will, there's a monetary will, there's a political will to make this happen. Okay, so far so good? Yep. Okay. This was the this was the tragic news that Esther heard, and she knew something had to be done. So she made a plan. <clears throat> so what was her plan? So the basic plan, again, and I'm elucidating all these ideas, the basic approach of these, again, are elucidated from my Rabbam. But the basic plan, and, and not only from, these are based on Chazals. Okay, there are a lot of Gemara Megillah. The Gemara Megillah has like, what, why did he, um, why did she uh, make the parties? Why did she invite Muhammad to the parties? There's a, like 10 reasons or something like that. So again, there's a lot of different interpretations. I'm presenting one line of presenting the story, but there's a lot of ways to interpret the story. So I'm not claiming this is the only way to interpret the story, but I'm going to come in a way which is particularly meaningful to me. Okay, but again, there's lots of different ways. But basically, and again, it's rooted. It's rooted in, in different chazal. So she's basically um, she 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 realizes that Haman is is a major threat, and the only way she could break this plan from happening is if she sows seeds of um, distrust between Haman and Achashverosh. She has to break that bond, that connection. She has to cause Achashverosh to look at Haman differently, to look at him as an enemy, to look at him as not a good friend who's trying to help, but as somebody who's really trying to manipulate the kingdom to take over power. And that's what she successfully did. And the way she did it is at first was that she wanted, she risked her life to, to come before the king. Something really, really important is going on. The fact that she's willing to go in front of the king without being called and they knew she, she could have been killed on the spot. And she got Ahasuerus curious, what in the world is going on? Oh, I want a party together with Haman. A private party between the husband and his wife and the third wheel Haman. What in the world? What is going on here? What's Why is my private party with my wife having Haman there? And what's going on? What's so important? And she didn't tell him. And that night, he couldn't even sleep because he was like thinking, what is going on? Is there some major plot if my queen is willing to risk her life? Obviously something major is happening. I don't know. And sure enough, he couldn't sleep. And that not sleeping wasn't just a coincidence. It was based upon, she put this bug in his head and he couldn't think. And he's thinking, maybe someone's trying to kill me. I don't know. Maybe you have to reward somebody. Someone has to tell me. Maybe there's a plot underway. And he's looking in the Sefer Zuchonos to try to find someone. Maybe I haven't rewarded somebody. He said, who is that who I didn't uh, reward? And sure enough, they found though that it was Mordecai, right? And that's why was he looking for that? Because he's a king has to be paranoid, and he should be paranoid because people are trying to kill the kings, as we saw Big Son of Sarah dead. And when he's he's thinking something major, his queen is risking her life, Haman's involved, something is up. I need someone to give me information. And he's looking, is there somebody who I have to reward? Maybe I'll reward people and that will get people to speak up. So that's what he did. And at that very moment. Haman's coming into the palace, right? In the middle of the night, waiting to see, you know, like he can't wait until the morning to tell the king, you know, the king, because he's all excited about how much honor the king is giving him. And he's right, which is again, part of what her plan also was to get Haman all full of himself and to play to Haman's ego, which he was a big egomaniac. And that played into it. So he's all excited to talk about how great he is and to kill Mordechai because he hates Mordechai and Mordechai irks him beyond belief. 
because it smashes his idea of his own greatness. So like, and at that very moment, which is again, Nashkacha, I mean, it worked all this out, and this is her plan, but Nashkacha helped her plan come to fruition, is she comes to the, she, the, the you know, the Haman bot comes in, and basically, so, you know, the king, who's kind of suspicious of Haman, you see, he's asking, what should the king do to somebody he wants to honor? Right? And he doesn't say Mordechai. He's setting Haman up. Why is he setting Haman up? Because he's already getting jealous of them. This was put. This is the bug that was put in his head by Esther inviting uh, Haman to the party, and the, and and he sticks it to Haman by telling you go and uh, take Mordechai. Who do you know the story? So basically, you go and bring him through the streets. And basically, that was the beginning of the rift between Haman and Hashverosh, which was orchestrated by Esther's plan. So. And that basically, when she saw that the next day when she had the party, then she was able to present her argument. And her argument was that, right? He said, my nation is being sold as servants. I'm sorry, it's being destroyed. And they're, they're, they're I'm sorry, they're being sold to be destroyed. And if they were would have been sold as servants, then I would have been quiet because I don't want to harm the king. And I think it's Rashi it interprets that she's saying, I'm willing, I want the best for the kingdom. And if my people, my nation were being sold into slavery to serve you, Ahasuerus, I wouldn't have been complaining because I want the best of the kingdom. But Haman is killing us. Why in the world would you kill good servants? It doesn't make any sense. It, he, it must be he has a personal gripe with the Jews. He's got some sort of ax to grind. So his argument is Haman is not Haman Argument: Haman's not a friend. On the contrary, he's an enemy. And then right at that moment, Harvona says, oh, and here's the tree that um, he built to, to hang Mordechai Ayudi, Mordechai who is just rewarded, who's the loyal servant, who's known to save the life of the king. And when all that came together, her plan was successful. She basically, she was able to pin Haman and to bring out Haman's true colors, that he really was looking for power. And his hatred for the Jews was a personal vendetta. It wasn't just because it was best of the kingdom. If it was for the best of the kingdom, then why... Why is he not selling the Jews? Why is he killing the Jews? And with that perspective, it could be we could we could say that the the idea that Haman was motivated by a personal grudge and not purely by the best of the kingdom was really expressed subtly to Ahasuerus at the very beginning when he offered to pay for the plan, when he offered to pay for it, right? What ultimately got Haman on the eights was the fact that Haman paid for it. The fact that he made that offer was already indicating he had a personal agenda. Why is he offering to pay for the whole thing? Now, you might say, we already explained before why he's offering to pay for the whole thing, because he's showing that he's so committed to it that he's willing to foot the bill, right? So what's what's wrong with it? But, but I think the answer is quantity. It was a good idea to offer to pay for it. But does he really need to pay for the entire bill? Right? Why is he paying for the entire bill? Let him pay 10%. Let him pay 20%. Let him pay a million dollars, whatever the case is. The fact that if you want to make a gesture to show that you care about it, it's enough to just make a, some amount of money. The fact that you're will, he's willing to pay everything, he went too far. He misjudged the quantities. And because he misjudged the quantities, there was something weird about that, that Ahasuerus couldn't put his finger on it.
but it's like hinting to him. Rambas low that it's the tree. That was the beginning of the indication to Ahasuerus, which he didn't pick up on it at that moment. But then when Esther put together the whole plan and put it in his head, he realized, aha, that was it. You're right. That was there was something off. He misjudged. He misjudged it. It was a great idea, and that's what the Gematria is directing us to. You have to realize the mistake that Haman made was not in the qualitative plan. It was smart to offer to pay for it. But the quantity of the plan was too much. And that's what Chazal are referencing us to. Haman, HaKasaf, HaEitz. That ultimately the beginning of Haman's downfall was the error which he made in offering the money. Not just offering the money, but in the quantity of the money. And by using Gematria, Chazal are directing us towards that. They help show us that idea. And they teach us an important lesson in our lives. And this is what you're asking about, Benjamin is that when, when we have plans in our lives, it's not enough to have good strategies, but we have to have the right quantities in the strategies. We might want to invest in a stock. It's a great stock. How much are we going to invest in it? We might want to spend time with our kids, but we have a lot of things in life. How much time are we going to spend with our kids? We have, in, in, in any area of whatever we do in our lives, we have to be able to not only have good qualitative plans, but we have to judge, fine-tune the quantities of those plans. Haman had a great idea, but because he was off, he had an emotion, a bias in the area, he misjudged the quantities. And when we have biases in different areas in our lives, it makes us very often, very easy for us to be tricked and to misjudge quantities. And we have to be very careful. Sometimes we get enamored by our plans, which we come up with, and we fail to think about the significance, how important it is to measure the quantities properly and the best plan if not executed with the quantities in line as we see in the case of Haman led to his downfall he ended up on the tree the kesef ended up to be ha'itz because he misjudged the quantities and that's a lesson we have to take we're not Hamans but we do have decisions to make and we also have biases and we have to be careful sometimes we could indicate we're too excited about something it kind of comes off and if we get too much money too much eggs in one basket or whatever it will cause us to make errors. And that's very hard because when we have emotions, quantities are very, very hard to judge. And our emotions do throw us off and blind us at times. But that's part of the lesson that this is teaching us. But through the story of the Megillah, we could learn a lesson into our lives, specifically about the, which is indicated by the Gematria. Amazing. And I actually want to, I thought of something that um, kind of comes up a lot in understanding Avodah Zarah with this idea that, that even in service of Hashem, there's a sort of fine tuning because there's a <coughs> there's, there are boundaries to yes. to um, you know service of Hashem. So for example, yes. there's a there's a curtain which symbolizes yes. right between the holy yes. holy and, and humanity sure. that there's a separation yes. between you know yes. our world and and Hashem yes. realm. Yes, uh, the sons of Aaron. Yes, I, went too close. They went too close, sure. and and they 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 couldn't understand the quanti the quantity. They right. went too far, and they brought their their yes. fire, and that was their downfall. That, yes. To me, right. I, and Harsinai also, right? The fence on Harsinai. That if you get too close, you want to go close, but not too close. Yes, yes there's a exactly yes. So Definitely. wow, this was this was really amazing. Uh, we we would love to have you on again. To, absolutely, yeah, absolutely amazing. And, you know, you were referencing in the second question that when you were younger, that you know, Gamacho didn't speak to you. Gamacho never spoke to me either as a kid, and even, you know, even <laughs> when you know I. Even when I was at a stage of my life when most would have expected me to actually be very into Gamatria, I actually never was into Gamatria. Nah. Um, it's like this this podcast we had tonight. It, 
I have a lot to digest and to really yeah. think about it. And, you know, it really opened my eyes to, you know, a new way of looking at it. And we really appreciate it. Yeah, great. So there's, again, there's more examples. And I recommend, you know, if you're interested in this and you want to get the book, I elaborate on all these examples and do other ones and kind of show the steps and more sources. And so, again, it's, it's much more elaborate presentation of all these, but this is kind of the rough approach of what the book is trying Where to do. Where can our viewers buy your book? So you can get it on Amazon. You get it on, it's actually produced by this great company, Mosaica Press. So it's on their website, but it's available on Amazon. It's available in farm stores. It's pretty much, you know, wherever you buy farm, you should be able to find it. It's called Gamatria Refigured. And by the time we release this, hopefully it's going to be on Amazon Prime. Yes, so exactly. That's... Should be any day now. Yeah, okay, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. We wish you sure. a Shabbatov. Sure, yeah. pleasure. And I do. I want to give you guys the Yashikoach for all the great work you do. And again, I really like, I listen to this great podcast and it's, uh, I love the guests and I love the conversations you have. So again, it's uh, it's very uh, great service you're doing. Thank you. Thank we you appreciate so it. Thank and we appreciate you. you. Thank you so much. You. Sure. Sure. Have a good night, guys. Okay. Okay. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys